this is my first time uh, here at the Mershon Center, but uh, I've actually been quite a, a frequent virtual visitor uh, to the Mershon Center because the Scowcroft Institute, which I'm affiliated with, is now entering its third year. And when we started looking around the country, thinking about what kind of place we want to be, we thought, well, who's doing it right? Who's doing good scholarship with good fellowships, with good speaker series, and who's really making an impact in the field? And we immediately concluded that the Mershon Center were the people that we should uh, assiduously copy uh, and steal from, I think is the term which we like to use often. So thank you for all that good work and for telling us what to do. It's a presence I'm taking home with me again. Um, so it's not really, it's more of a token, I guess. I don't know. Uh, as you may know, uh, the director of the Bush School uh, International Affairs Program is Charles Herman, who was here for many years at Mershon Center. And he asked me to bring up this sweatshirt, uh, which he claims is of a design that was never actually employed. Uh, so it looks nice. I don't know. Um, now, he actually told me I was supposed to wear it while giving this talk. Uh, my wife said no. Uh, and in all things, you should follow your department head except for in fashion, I think. So I'm, I'm choosing her advice. In any event, thank you for having me. Um, I come then with that singular point that I mentioned earlier, uh, that 1989 and all that happened in 1989 continues to resonate throughout the international system today. It is fascinating in its own right to be sure. Surely the events of that year are going to be fodder for future generations of historians to come. And those events continue to resonate throughout the international system. This is the central point of a book which we've just published on 1989, which I am largely here to discuss today. Uh, it came out this last November from Oxford Press. It's entitled, uh, aptly I think, The Fall of the Berlin Wall, The Revolutionary Legacy of 1989. And the book was a group effort. It was the result of several years' work designed to show 1989's history and legacy from the perspective of four different geopolitical centers of power, that being the United States, the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc, Europe, very broadly defined, and China. Each of these regions, of course, had their own experience with 1989. Each had some memory of those events as well that continue to haunt and color their international relations to this day. To investigate these four regions, we invited four specialists of each. The purpose of the entire project was to show 89 from these very perspectives. And so for each of the four regions, we brought in a specialist. For the United States, we brought in Mel Leffler from the University of Virginia. Uh, for Europe, James Sheehan from Stanford University. For the Soviet Union, Amherst Bill Taubman. And for China, Cornell University's Chen Jian. My job was to edit their work and also to offer a synthetic and chronological account of 1989, both locally and globally, uh, and also to tie in the various themes that they brought together. And my talk today will give you what I think is the single most important theme, and also one with particular importance for international security uh, as well. Now, I should tell you that because this is a collective work, if you have any particular disagreements or quibbles with uh, any of the varied interpretations from those four scholars, you may take it up with them. Uh, if you like the overall theme, I will accept those, uh, those comments. Let me turn then to 1989. This was arguably a year without precedent in modern history. 
Now, were one of my undergrads to write that in an essay, I would immediately get out my red pen and cross it out. But for 1989, I think you've got a pretty good case that more happened of significant import, especially for the international system in this year than perhaps any other for centuries before. It was, for some, however, a year that proved a central lesson, that hard power mattered. Yet others took from 1989 the lesson, the opposite lesson, in fact, that revolutionary change occurred, especially behind the Iron Curtain, precisely because military power was never employed. Still others believe that 1989 taught that the future would be driven not by the state, but by global markets and technological change. And for others, ultimately, 1989 proved what they always thought they knew, that hard power and that, in fact, good old-fashioned geopolitics will continue to reign in the 21st century. What is fascinating about this is that each of the four geopolitical centers took that different, one of those different interpretations from 89, and each of them believes, despite the fact that they all enjoyed this year, experienced this year together, each of them believes that their own interpretation is not only the correct historical interpretation, but the interpretation that is prescriptive. That is, it should define what it is that they should be doing for their national policies in years to come. In fact, uh, one way of thinking about this experience is actually from cinema. If you think back to uh, Akira Kurosawa's classic film Rashomon, in which different characters relate their experience with the same experience, but they're all vastly different. Their first-hand accounts are vastly different. That's the uh, one good way to understand 1989 from the international perspective. Let me then give an overview of those four national perspectives or four regional perspectives. It'll, of course, be only a snapshot of each of those. So if you have any more specific questions about any of the particulars, please feel free to ask, because I'll have to glide through all these four reasonably quickly. Let me turn then first to the United States, one story which I think will be most familiar to most people in this room. For American policymakers, speaking in broad terms, of course, though here we have an instance where broad terms are actually quite accurate, I think, 1989's lesson was remarkably simple. The Cold War was not so much survived as it was actively won. Ronald Reagan is, of course, the popular hero for this narrative. His fusing of principle and power propelled an end to a conflict most experts believed would simply last indefinitely. Now, American policymakers from throughout the political spectrum by and large accepted this dominant narrative of Cold War victory won through overwhelming power. What doomed the Southern Confederacy during the Cold War and what destroyed the Axis powers in World War II in time ground the Soviets to dust. That is sheer force. Economic force, which produced military force, but force nonetheless. And it was produced, of course, by the dynamism of the American economy, which, of course, has all the ancillary trends of freedom, the market, things which American policymakers would naturally accept without question. As George H.W. Bush declared in his inaugural address in January of 1989, quote, we know what works, freedom works. We know what's right, freedom is right. We know how to secure a more just and prosperous life for man all over the earth through free markets, free speech, free elections, and the exercise of free will unhampered by the state, end quote. Now, Bush's lofty rhetoric was repeated by virtually, by exactly every post-Cold War president, but that rhetoric also veiled an important iron fist. In his valedictory 
foreign policy address, Bush concluded that for America to continue to lead the world, quote, real leadership requires a willingness to use military force, end quote. Of equal import, he advised, quote, once we are satisfied that force makes sense, we must act with the maximum force possible, end quote. Americans only lost in places such as Vietnam, this powerful and popularly understood logic ran, when they hamstrung their own power and when they undermined their own resolve. Bush's successors continued to rely upon lofty rhetoric of freedom, but also upon the hard power, hard tools of power. The United States did not, in the years that followed 1989, abandon any of the military alliances forged during the half-century-long Cold War. Neither did it remove troops from geopolitical hotspots ranging from Germany to Korea to the increasingly important Persian Gulf. Politicians and pundits spoke in broad terms of a peace dividend. Yet overall military expenditure for the United States never dipped below 3% of U.S. GDP in the past 20 years. And this is, in fact, a superficially low percentage that is, in fact, greater, as we all know today, than the rest of the world spends on military combined. Force, therefore, provides a universally applicable answer to all manner of international quandaries since 1989, so this logic runs, from humanitarian intervention to the paramount goal of expanding democracy. Presidents in the post-Cold War era used force to bring democracy to Haiti, Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and employed the threat of military force in Bosnia, Iran, the Taiwan Straits, and the Korean Peninsula. For a broad swath of American policymakers in the post-1989 era, only a diminution of American force could undermine the power of American-led democracy. As Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney warned in 1990, and yes, I know it's a little bit difficult to use Dick Cheney as an example of a broad swath of American thinking, but here I think it's, you can see it. He said, quote, it is absolutely vital, and again, this is 1990, it is absolutely vital that we retain sufficient military force to sustain our worldwide commitments, end quote. Aside from defending American lives and territory, he emphasized, such military capability nurtures, quote, an environment in which freedom and democracy and, and market economies can flourish, end quote. What is crucial to understand about the lesson of 1989 in that lesson celebrating force, power, and the market is that it transcended party lines. No matter the party in charge, the United States might act alone or in an alliance. The United States might act with international sanction or without it, but it would never eschew the use of force when its international needs arose. As Bill Clinton said, quote, America's resolve and American ideals so clearly articulated by Ronald Reagan helped bring the wall down. The lesson was clear, he said, when our vital interests are challenged or the will and conscience of the international community is defied, we will act with peaceful diplomacy whenever possible, with force whenever necessary, end quote. He ended his time in office, in fact, eight years later, with the conclusion that, quote, if the wars of the 20th century, especially the recent ones in Kosovo and Bosnia, have taught us anything, is that we achieve aims by defending our values and leading through force, end quote. George W. Bush, of course, continued in this tradition. As he said, quote, the toppling of Saddam Hussein's statue in Baghdad will be recorded alongside the fall of the Berlin Wall as one of the great moments in the history of liberty, end quote. Force and will, he argued, were fused in each victory. 
even within an Obama administration eager to distance itself from its predecessor. And of course, there's been much in the national media over the last week to 10 days about just how much they have distanced themselves from their predecessors. This interpretation of the fall of the Berlin Wall and of 1989 still resonates and still forms much of the administration's foreign policy. So long as Americans continue to stay the course the new president offered, staying true to their values while maintaining power to enforce them, they had little to fear from the future. As Obama said, quote, recall that earlier generations faced down fascism and communism, not just with missiles and tanks, but with sturdy alliances and enduring convictions, end quote. The tanks and missiles, he might just as well said, made the reality powerful and gave hard meaning to American values. Ronald Reagan, I think, would not have put it any differently. Nor, in fact, would one of the original architects of the American Cold War strategy, former Secretary of State Dean Atchison. He said, this is one of my favorite quotes, I have to say, in all of diplomacy, quote, we are willing to help people who believe the way we do continue to live the way they want to live. Let me say that one again, because it's a winner. We continue to, we are willing to help people who believe the way we do live the way they want to live. The only difference between 2009, 1989, and 1945 was that policymakers under Bush, Clinton, Bush again, and now Obama generally believe that the experiment has been run and their answer confirmed. Now, others, of course, saw a vastly different lesson. Let me turn then to Europe and Europe broadly defined. European strategists drew a far different lesson from 1989. To their eyes, military power had not, in fact, destroyed communism. Rather, it was the sheer absence of military power and threats that made Eastern Europeans' velvet revolutions possible in the first place. Even communists came to their senses, their reading of 1989 proved, so long as reasonable people were given sufficient time to come to reasonable conclusions. Their lesson, that consensus, transnational institutions, and integration far more than traditional hard power, were the tools that would shape the new world to come. Faith in this vision emerged from four-plus decades of unexpected success in healing the bloody divisions that had plagued Europe for the previous four centuries. European societies, of course, nearly committed suicide in World War I. They tried again in the Second World War, and no one believed that they would survive a third attempt. Slowly and carefully at first, of course, but with increasing vigor over time, Post-1945, European leaders forged a common home that integrated divergent economies, religions, cultures, languages, and nations into a society in which war and eventually even the threat of force simply had no real place. Franco-American reconciliation, of course, became both the engine and in time the model for this new form of Europe. But ultimately, it also offered a model for a new form of international relations writ large. As French state statesman Robert Schuman said in 1950, quote, Europe will not be made all at once or according to a single plan. It will be built through concrete achievements which first create a de facto solidarity, end quote. The European Common Market and subsequent European Union were just such moves towards solidarity, each a case study in deliberative consensus building, compromise, and institution building. Process mattered, in other words. And there was more than an echo, therefore, of Schumann's 1950 statement of faith and solidarity as a palliative to conflict in German Foreign Minister Hans-Dietrich Genzer's 1987 explanation of detente as, quote, deepened cooperation lying in the interests of both sides 
through which an irreversible system-opening process must be shaped. Again, process is the lesson taken here. Europe's transformation from battlefield to stable home was, to the European mindset, the critical factor that allowed the Soviet Union to sit idly by as democracy swept through its empire in the late 1980s. European unity, not only Western but Eastern as well, did not require, in the words of Soviet Premier Gorbachev, quote, the overcoming of socialism, which would be, of course, a confrontation, uh, which would, of course, be a course for confrontation, if not worse, end quote. When he spoke in 1989 and after of a common European home, a refrain he used again and again, when he spoke, in fact, of, quote, a single European entity from the Atlantic to the Urals, end quote, his conception was not of a Europe under Soviet domination, as Stalin might have suggested, On the contrary, Gorbachev wanted less to control Europe than to merge with it. Quoting Victor Hugo, in fact, the Soviet premier predicted, quote, without losing their distinguishing features and splendid distinctiveness, states will merge inseparably into a high-level society and form a European brotherhood, end quote. This model inspired admirers throughout the behind the Iron Curtain. When crowds in Berlin in Budapest, in Warsaw or Prague, chanted for freedom, when they chanted for democracy, it was not America that they had in mind, though American policymakers rarely noted this or made this distinction. It was, in fact, their European neighbors just to the West that they hoped to emulate. As historian Tony Jute has written, quote, this was more than just a matter of rhetoric. Sometimes the thought was inflected as the market economy, sometimes as civil society. But in either case, Europe stood squarely and simply for normalcy and for a modern way of life, end quote. Gorbachev confirmed the power of Europe's appeal to compromise. The age of violent revolution was over, he told the United Nations in 89. Quote, Force and the threat of force can no longer be and should not be instruments of foreign policy because we live in the same European house, end quote, with room enough for a moderated Soviet-style socialism to exist along with a mutually advantageous European democratic socialism, he said, quote, we must integrate and cooperate, end quote. Now, I should note, by the way, that Gorbachev's direct appeal to Europe in this period was one of the things that flummoxed the George H.W. Bush administration most of all. Because that Bush administration came into power essentially not believing that the Cold War was over, all evidence to the contrary. They believed, and not just the hardliners in the administration, but throughout the administration, that perhaps the Soviets were simply playing a sophisticated game and that they were appealing to European integration in order to wean the Europeans away from the Americans and thereby salvage, give themselves time to save the European, uh, save Soviet communism. In fact, one of the uh, most astounding documents that I've seen recently that came out, uh, that we found at the Bush Library in the newly declassified Scowcroft Papers is a speech that Dick Cheney wanted to give uh, in 1989 about the Soviets, but was not allowed to. Uh, We know, for example, that Cheney was, uh, not surprisingly, one of the hardest of the hardliners against the Soviets. He firmly believed that this Gorbachev thing was just a really good ruse. Uh, In fact, he then submitted a speech saying that and much more, and the White House squashed it. So when you think about the fact that we already knew that Cheney was on the fringe of this issue and that he was not allowed to say things uh, 
which would have made him even further on the fringe. It gives you a sense just how much the Americans feared this Soviet integration move with Europe as pure rhetoric, despite the fact that I think we can make a very good case that for the Soviets, and to a lesser extent for the Europeans, they honestly meant it. The key in 1989 from a European perspective, therefore, was that consensus, institutions, and integration more than force brought about the changes which explains for that year. And this explains why Europeans have, by and large, been so critical in years since for what they believe to be simply overly aggressive and at times militaristic U.S. policies throughout the world. Peace works, their argument runs. It explains their deep reservations, of course, over the war in Iraq, over the conflict in Afghanistan, and even their reservation over mustering force to end conflicts in their own backyards, such as in the Balkans. Even when military force is considered by Europe's European contemporary, by European Union's contemporary leaders, it is typically for peacekeeping operations. The continent's political consensus did not shatter after the Iron Curtain collapsed. Instead, as James Sheehan notes in his chapter for this book, the European Union steadily expanded, so that its members now total 27 states. As Sheehan writes, quote, the forces that transformed European domestic and international politics after 1945 were too deeply embedded to be uprooted by the end of the Cold War or by the unification of the two post-war German states. Let me then turn to Russia, which I think embraced the most bitter legacy of 1989. The Cold War end, not surprisingly, produced a great deal of anxiety in Moscow. Yet there was also a great deal of hope that further integration with Europe would bring greater security and prosperity than Soviet communism ever had. Russia might, the most optimistic believe, at long last become actually European. This was, of course, a historic dream. And these hopes were, of course, soon dashed. The European Union barred its doors. Membership in the WTO forever seemed out of reach. Western institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, came to be seen in Russia as tools for increasing American power and further for humiliating Russia. The post-Soviet economy crumbled. The ruble devalued time and again. Crime skyrocketed. Food became scarce. Russian life expectancy dropped throughout the country. Russia's voice in international relations, which had previously been given great weight, lost authority as its core interests were hastily diminished and dismissed by Western leaders and experts seemingly to Russian ears more interested in lecturing than in helping. As Bill Taubman has argued, events after 1989 not only highlight Russian weakness, quote, they also meant the end of Gorbachev's European dream. Hungry and humiliated Russians were forced to watch as the United States flexed its military muscle around the world, even in a region, the Balkans, of historic interest. What was seen as heavy-handedness of America and NATO towards Serbia in the 1990s convinced Russia that the promises of 1989 were, in fact, empty. This came at the same time that the West heavily criticized Russia's military intervention, of course, in Chechnya. 1989 is therefore not recalled in Russia as a triumph, but instead as a moment when Moscow lost the empire won at such great and dear cost in World War II, and more importantly, and more fundamentally for the future, it is recalled as a moment when Western democracies proved once and for all their inherent nefariousness. As Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov rhetorically asked earlier this very year, excuse me, last year, 2009, quote, do we feel secure in a Euro-Atlantic area? Yes, we have membership in security organizations, several of them, end quote, 
He then listed a litany, however, of broken promises made to the Russians after 1989, including differences over NATO expansion, military integration, missile defense, and military interventions that led Russians to distrust Westerners who spoke of integration and consensus. From Russia's perspective, he said, these commitments and institutions, quote, don't seem to be working, and they haven't been working for quite a long time. Indeed, the principle of the indivisibility of security says that no country should secure itself at the expense of another. We just don't see that in practice, end quote. For Russia's foreign minister and for those around him, 1989's lesson was clear. Russia would have to stand on its own to defend its national interests. The West could not be trusted after it so harshly rebuked Gorbachev's vision of a common collective future. After years of broken security promises and the pain of Russian integration into a global economy during the 1990s, both Russian elites and their general public have come to believe that they have only themselves to rely upon. As the democratic hopefulness of Boris Yeltsin gave way to the more Machiavellian Vladimir Putin and beyond, Russia enthusiastically pursued a model at odd with the liberal democratic market economy model proclaimed by the end of history theorists back in 1989. Russia no longer had the wherewithal to compete with the United States on a military plane, but would use whatever tools it had at its disposal, including, and this is key, its vast energy resources, to deploy these tools ruthlessly within its own security sphere, and by the way, its own ever-expanding sense of security sphere, in places such as Georgia or Ukraine to pursue narrow nationalistic interests. Russians, in other words, took to heart the same lesson as Dick Cheney and a generation of American policymakers. Rhetoric about freedom, markets, and democracy aside, rhetoric requires real power. And real power in the world means not only never having to say you're sorry, but never again having to yield to another's will. Let me then turn to the final example for the 1989 to China, which I think has the most puzzling legacy. China, we should recall, had its own history of 89, distinct from the other cases I've described. For while Americans and Europeans typically conjure up images of the Velvet Revolution and the fall of European communism when that year is invoked, for China, 1989 was all about Tiananmen Square. Indeed, we must recall that for policymakers at the time, the two events were inevitably intertwined. The crackdown on Tiananmen, in fact, occurred on the very same day that Polish voters voted out their communist government. In fact, the Tiananmen's buildup, the buildup of protests, occurred when Mikhail Gorbachev was visiting Beijing, much, of course, to the embarrassment of the Chinese authorities. For global leaders, then, the two events, the rise of democracy in Eastern Europe and the apparent rise of what seemed to be a democratic movement in China, seemed inevitably linked. Bush, for one, declared that, quote, Glasnost and the Beijing demonstrations prove that democracy is on the march, end quote. Now, Chinese leaders saw these links as well, but whereas Bush and others in the West celebrated such global connections, Chinese leaders sought to sever those ties entirely. Jay chose force, of course, to keep the two phenomenons separate. As the Communist Party officially ruled in March in an internal document subsequently released, quote, Every effort should be made to prevent changes in Eastern Europe from influencing China's internal development, end quote. Only in China, then, did a state suffer a serious question to its own legitimacy and survive. When protesters called for reform, Deng Xiaoping and others feared 
turmoil, which for them conjured up dangerous memories of the Cultural Revolution. That revolution had only been ended for a little bit more than a decade at this point. This was a revolution, a cultural upheaval that Deng and others knew quite well. Deng having been ousted from power three times, having been internally exiled three times. Deng's own son having lost the ability to walk when thrown from a roof by uh, supporters of the Cultural Revolution. When Chinese leaders heard young people in the streets calling for reform and perfecting society, they knew how quickly and moreover how violently that could lead to overwhelming turmoil. And they knew what Chinese crowds bent on change were capable of. They therefore prioritized stability. As the People's Daily editorialized in words directly taken, we now know, from Deng, quote, under the banner of democracy, protesters were trying to destroy the democratic legal system. This was a planned conspiracy, a riot, whose real nature was to fundamentally negate the leadership of the Communist Party and to negate the socialist system, end quote. We all know, of course, how Chinese leaders reacted. They took from 1989, therefore, the lesson that stability was paramount, especially when communist leaders lost power, ultimately, when they ceded the authority in their country to popular protest. The long-term manifestations of that lesson, undergirded by force, is by far, I think, the most complex, puzzling, and perhaps even the most contradictory of all the great centers of power I'm discussing today. For the government, in effect, made an explicit deal with itself and with its citizens. Dissent, in almost any form, would not be tolerated in exchange for further growth and prosperity. So long as prosperity expanded, no one could question the government's legitimate right to rule at home, and any who did would, as in 1989, suffer quick repression. But Chinese foreign policy reflected a particular reading of 1989 as well. After 1989, or more accurately, after the imposition of economic and political sanctions imposed by outsiders in response to Tiananmen, Chinese leaders in time expanded the nation's participation in a variety of international organizations, believing membership in and international recognition of the state's participation would overall increase the state's global legitimacy. Beijing, after 1989, increased its international aid donations, especially in areas of the developing world of potential political and economic interest, hoping to build credibility at the same time that they built economic ties. Even as Chinese diplomats embraced the cooperative nature of the post-1945 European process, therefore, they simultaneously took the Russian lesson to heart, that the West would not yield merely to good intentions. So long as the Americans continued to believe in old-fashioned state interests, those countries that George W. Bush called strategic competitors, that being Russia and China, had to, on some level, act in kind. China moved aggressively to gain admission to the WTO, even while Beijing rebuffed American saber-rattling in disputed regions. Unwilling to retreat from sensitive political areas at home, China did not relent on its historic ties, including, of course, to Taiwan. It remained suspicious of its neighbors, Japan, Russia, Korea, and India especially. But it appears eager, like Russia, to marshal its national power, whether expressed in stockpiling access to global energy resources or in maintenance of a highly, uh, artificially high yuan. Yet unlike the Americans or Russian, and in clear recognition that they lacked Washington's hard power, 
Beijing also pursued non-military ends to its goals after 1989. It is in fact striking to note how little, in comparison to its growing GDP, Chinese leaders have recently spent on its military. Chinese power today in the world comes from its holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds, not from its ability to match America's blue water neighbor, um, uh, to uh, blue water navy. This does not mean, of course, that China has not increased its military since, since 1989, but it simply means that the European view of delegitimized force in the 21st century appears to have left a significant mark on Chinese thinking. So long as one has at least the touch of vinegar, the Chinese appear to be saying, one can in fact get more in the world by using honey. It could be, from this perspective, that China has taken the best lesson from 1989 because uh, it has taken the lesson learned from the other three. It is no coincidence that as power has increased by the greatest margin of power, the greatest margin of all the four powers since 89. Human rights, so long exemplified by memories of Tiananmen Square, no longer dominate Sino-American relations 20 years later. Hillary Clinton, for example, on her recent visit to Beijing, said, quote, our pressing on these issues, human rights in Tibet she was referring to, can't can interfere on the global economic crisis, the global climate crisis, and the security crisis, end quote. American policymakers, like Clinton, knew that since 1989, those issues mattered most of all. They found common ground with the Chinese on this. The world similarly validated this approach towards China at the recent Beijing Olympics, where we should recall that opening ceremonies featured children dressed as though from China's uh, several dozen different ethnic groups and regional groups, children who marched together holding a singular flag, only to hand it to uniformed soldiers for the final run up the flagpole. This symbolic message was crucial and was clear to the world. Prosperity mattered, multiculturalism mattered, peace mattered, but the state would provide the stability and the security for all to prosper. And moreover, the state's rights and responsibility here would not be questioned. Now, this admittedly rapid-fire run through 1989 from these four different perspectives prompts several conclusions, most of which, of course, I've already alluded to. First, as I've argued, that 1989 was a watershed for international politics. Second that each of the major policymakers, each of the major players, I should say, understood this great transformation from different perspectives. Like those characters in Rashomon, the United States, the Europeans, Russia, and China saw the events of 89 in different, even contradictory ways. Understanding these differences, and perhaps more importantly, getting the history of 1989 right, would, I think, go a long way towards easing the tensions and avoiding disputes among key players in years to come. Let me add one more conclusion from this project, one that I have not mentioned yet, one uh, particularly interesting, I hope, to historians in the room. Uh, one of the fascinating debates about the revolutions of 1989, the history of 1989, is, uh, of course, why they happened. Uh, it is most often the case, especially if you come from a perspective of studying Eastern Europe, that you place your emphasis when answering this question on people power. It was a revolution from below. One of the things that I think is striking about this study and what we've determined, especially when you compare the Chinese reaction to Gorbachev's reaction, is that while people power might be necessary for a domestic fomented revolution, no one can argue that point, it is very easy for national leaders 
to put a halt to it should they choose. In some cases, i.e. behind the Iron Curtain, force was not deployed, thereby allowing those revolutions to, for the most part, to prosper and, and to flourish. In other cases, Beijing, force was deployed. So the lesson we take from this is that when asking the question, does history occur from the top down or from the bottom up, the best answer, of course, is both. But at the very least, you need uh, leaders at the top who are willing to allow ferment from below. And with that, I thank you, and I look forward to discussion. Thank you. Oh, yeah, please. Sir. Well, I mean, you can you, I mean, you can get the Australians to fight at the drop of a hat. I mean, that's not uh, it's it's not hard to get the Australians to back a fight. Uh, well, well, yeah, uh, and. I think that that's the better case to see it. I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, I think that we also need to make a distinction between continental Europe and, of course, the British who, uh, and uh, as with the Australians, the pseudo-British, uh, who have their own uh, particular American-style willingness to use force. Uh, I think what is striking, especially if we look at Afghanistan, especially if we look at the initial, uh, right after the initial push in Afghanistan in 2001, is how quickly the Europeans, even while giving military force as a NATO operation, how quickly the Europeans want to describe that conflict and the entire broad conflict on the war on terror as a police matter, uh, more so than a military matter, and how immediately the Bush administration rejected that. And frankly, I'm, I'm struck by the continuities between the Clinton approach and the um, Obama approach on this issue, and the two sides, especially in Afghanistan, to my mind, seem to be delving further apart. Uh, you know, it, it is true, I think, that the Europeans, as with Blair, um, went in with Iraq, of course, but uh, I think that we're seeing today, in particular, in, in British politics, the ultimate uh, lack of enthusiasm among the British populace for this. Uh, it strikes me that if we want to make a distinction between continental Europe and the rest on this issue of a post-1989 understanding of the European Union uh, and what that means, we have to recognize, interestingly enough, that the British populace seems to be much more continental than its leadership was, at least at the time. And I think that's one of the reasons that labor is suffering so much on this issue.
You know, um, I have to say I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that, especially on issues like Iran, that um, despite the, the heated rhetoric, uh, this may be a question of means and capability more than of intent. But I'm struck by the fact that uh, I don't see a lot of real discussion of French decision to use military force in Iran, for example. Uh, when Sarkozy talks about perhaps need to use force, he's referring to American force. Now, we can debate whether... Well, yeah, it does make sense. But, and, and I think that it also allows them to uh, have their cake and eat it, too, on these issues. You know, they can say, yes, force needs to be used. And then if it's used by the Americans, they can come down on it and say, you use too much force, while, of course, quietly saying, thank you for using so much force. Uh, but I, it strikes me that for continental politics, the, the desire to use force is um, simply uh, not matching the rhetoric, uh, the ability to use force. And I think we see this in the rapid, in the develop, in the slow and, and laggard and, and um, uh, well, slow is probably the best, most polite word. Uh, development of the European Rapid Reaction Force. I mean, this is something that's been on the on the books for 20 years, and will be on the books in 20 more years. Uh, and as long as European leaders can say we need to be able to match the Americans in terms of capability and the Americans keep doing the dirty work for them, I, I think the Europeans actually are quite smart in not putting, their, putting themselves into dangerous situations and letting the Americans do the dirty work for them. So, and the Americans, by the way, are, seem perfectly willing to do that. So, Mitch. Uh, two questions, Jeff, one narrow and one broad. Uh, you talked a little bit about the impact of the Cultural Revolution on China and its interpretation in 1989. I wonder if, how you would respond to the suggestion that there's a similar relationship between 1968 and Czechoslovakia and the Soviet perspective. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have seen any evidence that suggests that, particularly as you talked about your last point and the unwillingness of leaders to allow these movements, uh, the willingness of leaders to allow these movements to go forward, mm -hmm. if there's any uh, resonance from 1968 Czechoslovakia situation to the Soviet the other question on a broader level, you talk, to go back to the American perspective, you talk about uh, the, the greater commitment to force, or the, the belief that the great lesson is American force, and I wonder how you distinguish between rhetoric and reality mm -hmm. in there. I don't doubt for a moment that since 1989, American politicians have paid lip service to the need for great force, but how much of that is political reality, how much of that is politics versus reality? And I would turn to Korea as a good example I don't doubt that since 1989, American rhetoric towards Korea has been more belligerent and more rooted in force, and yet what I've seen is almost the opposite, because quietly there's a much greater emphasis on diplomacy, mm -hmm. despite increased North Korean provocation since 1989. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great question. Let me, let me go back to the first one uh, first, about 1968. One of the things that was really shocking to me uh, as we went through this project, and it was looking at the evidence that was brought up by Bill Taubman and his co-author on the Soviet Union to examine Gorbachev's reaction to the fomenting revolutions in, in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, time and again, uh, eventually, well, let me say, Gorbachev eventually explicitly renounces the Brezhnev Doctrine uh, in a speech before the United Nations in 1989. Uh, that doctrine saying that, this, that the, in the post-1968 context that the Soviets would be willing to go in to help any other socialist state that was under attack from internal dissent and in, internal forces. Essentially, we have the right to go in and, and use force to intervene. Gorbachev denounces this, but what's fascinating is that um, it was never really a question of 1968 for him. 
It was a question of his own moral sense and willingness to use force. Uh, the only time that Russian forces use military force to put down a, a, a revolution, we now put down protest, was uh, in uh, Estonia, and, and I, I believe either Estonia or Lithuania. Estonia. Uh, and it was a mistake. And Gorbachev went ballistic because that he simply could not countenance the idea of blood on his hands for people who were acting upon the impulses that he himself felt that he had put in place. And in fact, there is a fascinating, an absolutely fascinating um, meeting that occurs in the summer of 89 between the entire Warsaw Pact nations, where um, Ceausescu from Romania and also um, uh, the Eastern, Euro- Eastern German uh, leadership uh, essentially s- stands up and makes a presentation to everyone else in the Warsaw Pact saying, we need to use force in Hungary, and we need to be prepared to use force in Poland. And Gorbachev, and they make a, actually, you know, if they had had PowerPoint, they would have made a PowerPoint presentation. I mean, it really was a very, you know, they had gotten together Ceausescu and the East Germans to make this as a unified plea. And Gorbachev reads them the riot act in front of everyone else in the room, saying, you know, you are missing history. It has nothing to do with the past, but you don't understand the future. You cannot use force anymore in the future. You cannot use force in this way. And if you use force, you are on your own. You are not going to get any outside assistance, in particular from the Soviets. What's interesting about this is that we have um, at least five different accounts, all of which corroborate this discussion, that were leaked from, not leaked, that's not, leaked implies, well, they weren't just leaked, they were handed over from other Eastern European governments to the Americans and to the British after that meeting because they wanted everybody to know that if force was employed in Romania or if force was employed in East Germany, that it was not sanctioned by Moscow, that this was not not global communism cracking down, it was simply the national forces. And frankly, I think that's because of Gorbachev's personality. I think other leaders might have been willing to go in a different direction. So for Gorbachev, 68 isn't so much the marker as it is starting to believe his own logic and believe his own rhetoric, I think. Um, The second question on uh, how much is rhetoric versus reality. I'm, you know, I, I study rhetoric and I love rhetoric and I think rhetoric is great, uh, but I gotta tell you, I'm impressed by how much Americans use military force and then don't talk about it. Uh, you know, for all the rhetoric that we see of saber rattling on Korea, for example, or the bluster up to the Iraq war in 2003, what is more impressive to me is the willingness of the Obama administration, for example, to deploy force and then not talk about it afterwards in places such as Pakistan with the drones and in places that don't matter that there's a to the American pub populace that uh, as as we now know from articles that have come out in the in the Times in the last couple of weeks what I forget the exact statistics but essentially the Obama administration has you know used what 15 20 times more missile attacks in Pakistan than the entire Bush administration ever did part of that is because most of the predators and, and most of the drones have been focused in Iraq of course and now have shifted to Afghanistan but there is also a willingness to use force now Obama has said on the campaign trail and afterwards quite explicitly yes we'll use force but it's not as though they get up afterwards and give a speech talking about how important force is that they're actually willing to let this force speak for itself is I find it finds itself to be very impressive and we keep building aircraft carriers, so, which I don't think is part of the stimulus package. So. Yes, sir. Uh, it it's, uh, seemed that you provided full, uh, full perspective. So this, 
Fortio political actors interpreted the event differently. It, it seems to me that it, it's also equivalent to like four regions of international order to some extent. So my question is that whether you see there, there could be either during the past 20 years or in the near future, there could be like interaction between among the four regions of international order. Whether like for example, you say China present a very sophisticated and positive learning case. Whether the China's uh, experience, per, uh, whether American policymakers updated mm -hmm. from the, the, the China case. Whether, for example, during the whole 1990s, it, it looks like dominant discourse in the US foreign policy uh, circulated that China is collapsing. Uh, it's not, if not today, maybe tomorrow. But now it looks like another discourse emerges that China is far more cons consolidated than previous time. Whether that is updated. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm struck, and I didn't really talk about this in great detail, I alluded to it, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that um, in 89 itself, the divergent, if we were to say they were divergent visions of international relations, they were much less divergent. That there was a more broadly, again, not universal, but more broadly based acceptance of this idea of a democratic peace, that the whole world was going to be democratic, and part and parcel of that, in China related in particular, would suggest that the more economically integrated, the more market economy you become in time, you will become more of a liberal democratic state. Uh, I'm struck first by how uh, that is no longer as unified a vision, as I mentioned in my talk. Um, but secondly, related to China in particular, I'm also struck by the fact that even as you point out that the people who suggested a centrifugal process going on in China in the 1990s have become uh, less willing to make that argument as China has appeared to grow and simultaneously grow economically and also become more stable. I'm impressed by the fact that we seem to see a resurgence of this economic liberalism idea that, okay, so we, we know we have willing to accept that perhaps we have to change the democratic peace logic a little bit to suggest that China, unlike Eastern Europe, will not become democratic and then accept, accept market reforms to keep it democratic. But at the very least, we are presuming that the greater prosperity within China will, in fact, liberalize the country. Um, one of the things that I find particularly interesting is that um, this vision of an America, this American ideal that countries that are repressive countries that are economically integrated with the world will in time become more democratic was basically not accepted by any American policymaker until about 1972. And then overnight, it shifted. It was always accepted by European policymakers, especially the British in the preceding decades. So uh, at the very least, that suggests to me that, as you point out, that the vision for economic integration can change and how that will lead to domestic political liberalization. But for China, it seems as though Americans are willing to change their rhetoric on China to befit the international situation that they perceive in China more than to hold China to a consistent line. Sir? I'll, I'll jump in if no one else yeah. wants to. Now, if, if you just, um, for the fun of it, were to extend the geographical vision to encompass other parts of the world, what, what sorts of lessons do you think the leaders of places like India mm -hmm. or Middle Eastern societies have drawn from 1989? Do you think it's, uh, that event is similarly viewed as a watershed? 
Uh, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, and I have to say it's one I have not given a lot of thought previously, so I'll, I'll genuinely spitball here. Um, again, I would have to be struck by how divergent the lessons seem to be. Uh, the Indians, much like the Chinese, seem to have drawn several distinct lessons. They, of course, draw the lesson that economic integration is key. Uh, that seems to be the entire base of their entire prosperity. But they have not drawn a, what I would argue, is a European-style lesson that economic integration and political process can trump all. The Indians, of course, are building up their own military. Now, again, we can, we can discuss whether or not that's because of uh, local concerns, because of the omnipresent concern of Pakistan, but I think it's largely because of China for the kinds of things that they're, that they're building and the kind of weapon systems that they're, that they're moving towards. So for the Indians, at least, I think they, too, are taking a hybrid lesson of international relations, though I don't know that I have no evidence uh, off the top of my head to suggest that 1989 is the touchstone for them as it is for these areas, for these other four areas. In fact, um, that would be a really good book that we could write, uh, which is a way of saying I have no idea, but I'm trying to pontificate to suggest otherwise. Uh, why 1989 matters so much to the regions that I focused on today and why it doesn't matter in other places. I frankly don't know that it matters to the, to the same extent in other places. I think they might be as out as if, if you perceive India as outside the 1989 story, the Indians might be taking a different lesson of neutralism, as of course you know better than I do that they took during, during, the, Cold, during the Cold War, which would require them both to integrate and also maintain their own military presence, for example. It seems like a common sense speculation, but autocratic societies would, uh, I would think, look more at the Chinese model, you mm -hmm. think of Iran, Egypt, mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, oh, yes. places that might yeah. be or are faced with significant domestic dissent. The lesson of China proving yes. that uh, you know, the straightforward use of force can be effective in destroying domestic dissent. I think that's exactly right, as a matter of fact. Thank you for making that up. Iran is really a great example of uh, not only, and in fact, it's not just it's not just common sense. We have good evidence for this. Uh, we know, for example, that the Iranians um, accepted Chinese visitors in the 1990s, uh, who you know, essentially would teach lessons on crowd control. Uh, and you know, you know exactly what that means when they say we're teaching you lessons on crowd control. It's it's not you know how to get people in and out of a stadium peacefully. It's how to deal with massive protest. And clearly, they have done a reasonably good job of, you know disrupting protest movements through force. Uh, and I think that they clearly have taken a lesson that so long as the state maintains authority, it has authority to use force until the moment when it doesn't. And we're going to keep that moment as far away as possible through the use of force. So. Sir. You've made comments about the United States and the European countries and Russia and China. Uh, do you have any I, I think that's largely the, the case. What is particularly impressive to me is how the Chinese are uh, more direct in applying their lesson of international relations post-1989 in Africa 
than other countries are. Um, now, again, this speaks to the larger model I'm describing of the Chinese being more willing to not only apply a hybrid model, but also one that is actively uh, precipitated by the state, that uh, it is impressive to me that the Chinese are directing their foreign aid uh, in places of potential economic development for the Chinese. Uh, so throughout Africa is a good example, that places where the Chinese see economic prosperity, that's where their aid goes, and they are building their own ties accordingly. And by the way, they're consequently building uh, allies or at least potential votes within the United Nations or within other international organizations for legitimacy uh, through the same process. So the Chinese in particular seem to be, have taken that lesson in Africa and are running with it, I think. Sir? Yeah, I have to say this is not an optimistic talk um, because, uh, you know, I, I am not particularly impressed by the fact – first of all, I'm not impressed that international policymakers learn a lot from international history. Uh, I do think, however, that they learn a lot from their own domestic interpretation of international history, and they also are most interested in speaking to their own domestic constituencies. So the Russia is, a, is the best case study for what happens when the populace and the policymakers come to an agreement of a consensus of history, that is, that we got screwed uh, and that we're not going to allow that to happen again. Um, so in that sense, I think that this is actually a, a downright uh, dangerous prescription because you know I can make a nice plea at the end of my talk that the world could be more peaceful if we all just read history more, but that's not going to happen. Uh, so um, for the Russians in particular, I think that the story is uh, quite clear that they are not going to allow themselves to go down the road of, of uh, allowing the West to dictate for them again. And I have to make one thing particularly clear. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about Gorbachev and his rhetoric is that at no time did Gorbachev and others, despite their discussion of integrating with Europe, of a common European home, and so on and so forth, at no time did Gorbachev ever envisioning dismantling the Soviet state. He was not there to bury communism. He was there to save communism. Uh, he did not want to go as far as France. He did not want to go as far as England. He wanted to maintain Soviet power and also his vision of what communism could be and to perfect that society. So he clearly lost, and by his own admission, he lost control over the process. But there's also a sense in which he started a process, and I think he, he, this is by his own admission as well, he began a process of reform for which he had no sense where the end game would be. But he knew something had to change. So when he began his discussion of a common European home, he did not think that that would mean that you could move seamlessly from one area to the other without recognizing a difference. He just meant that it would be a place where a Soviet society could continue to prosper or at least survive while through further integration with, with Europe. 
and this is really key that for, for the Russian interpretation of 1989, if you believe the logic of Gorbachev, that is, we're here to save communism, 1989 occurs and we lost. And so it's not just that we lost the Cold War, it's that we lost the way to save our souls as well to the West. I think I think that's absolutely right. In fact, I wouldn't so much say it's Trump so much as um, they override that they allow us to reinterpret the lesson of Vietnam based upon subsequent data. So you know, if I mean, you know this better than I do, you know, if the lesson of Vietnam in the 80s is you know don't get involved, and then by the time we have the uh, Powell Doctrine, it's don't get involved unless you have a clear exit and overwhelming force, and so on and so forth. 1989 shows that you know you can you don't have to get involved. But if you are going to get involved, do it the right way. So 89, in that sense, in the American context, is inextricably linked with the Gulf War victory, which seems to validate all of those lessons from Vietnam. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, certainly in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan, we see those lessons resonating. I mean, what's the, the chief complaint that one has, that one hears, not that one has, that one hears about the difficulties in Iraq and Afghanistan was you know, insufficient use of force, uh, if only we'd use more force. You hear that certainly from from the right, to be sure, as a lesson of Vietnam. I mean, yes, there's a lesson of we have to support the troops no matter what, which I think ultimately winds up blinding a lot of the debate over the intervention in Iraq. But it's a selective yeah. picking of what lessons more. Well, isn't that what all history is? No, I'm, I'm quite serious about that. I mean, I don't mean to be flip. I mean, I think that this is what is what is fascinating to me is that nobody ever says to any of these policymakers, and if they did, the policymaker wouldn't answer. No one ever says, okay, so you've invoked Ronald Reagan. Which Ronald Reagan do you mean exactly? Do you mean the first-term Ronald Reagan, the one that, you know, humorously but almost seriously, you know, signed a, a doc declaration outlawing the Soviet Union? Or do you mean the second-term Ronald Reagan who couldn't wait to hug Gorbachev more? And these are really different administrations, and these are really different people. But when you have both Bush and first Bush, and second Bush, and Clinton, and Obama, all saying Ronald Reagan proves that conviction works. You say, you know, you're really not parsing history particularly well. What you're doing is you're hitting the American public rhetorically, a nerve within the brain that says, oh, that's right, I liked Reagan. Whatever comes next in the sentence must be good. You know, if I start a sentence with, as Ronald Reagan said, kicking puppies is great, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that's not going to hear the second part, or that's going to say, "Oh, he kicked puppies. Okay, let's go with it." I got, you know, I, I, I have 17 kids in my high school class whose names whose name is Reagan. You know, therefore there must be something good that, that this guy said. And I think that that's really the way that this language doesn't get particularly uh, parsed by policymakers, and instead what they wind up understanding are the truisms, the things that they can repeat to each other and say to each other. You know, we lost in Vietnam. We lost in Vietnam. We weren't defeated in Vietnam, and that's your, that's really the key formulation. Similarly, we won the Cold War. 
The other side didn't give up. We won. Why did we win? That there's, there's a series of formulations that come uh, that lead policymakers to a common acceptance without them having to debate as we would exactly what do they mean by those interpretations. So um, again, this is I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic on, on I hate to say this at the Marchand Center, just as I would hate to say it at the Scowcroft Institute, I'm not particularly optimistic on the idea that what we do as academics matters one iota. Uh, because the policymakers are going to learn their lessons and are going to repeat them within that circle. And by the way, you know, they're going to probably repeat the book that was on the bestseller list, not the book that won the Bancroft or not the book that actually charged, uh, charged the field historiographically. You know, every policymaker in Washington, if we walked up to them and said, um, you know, tell me about the concept of, of team of rivals, they know exactly what that means. You know, now if I, if I said to them, you know, Every policymaker, tell me about uh, Professor McMahon's new interpretation of Atchison. You know, I know that's a far better book, but you know, uh, Dick Cheney doesn't. So, sir. You know, I think um, the reason that, I, that I'm comfortable with the concept of lessons here is that uh, it goes back to something I made, just a comment I made a few moments ago, that policymakers, for the purpose of justifying and explaining what they want to do in subsequent years, will call, conjure up historical memories uh, which are often not debated. So for the Russians to say we need to be strong, they can say, remember 89. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually um, uh, what the hell. Sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, at, at the same time, um, I actually uh, want to. You know, we can we can have a friendly quibble about this. I actually would disagree with your first statement, as I understood it, that 
uh, even liberal Americans would focus more on Gorbachev than they would on America having won the Cold War. And I think that that's actually quite universally accepted. Uh, I wouldn't say it's in the sense that it's not just liberal, but also conservative Americans. I think everybody who is thoughtful about this would say, you don't get the end of the Cold War the way you have it without Gorbachev. But then all sides, I think, would go a step back further historically and say, now why was it that Gorbachev wanted to invoke such change? And that's, I think, where the interpretive link actually comes in. That why does Gorbachev want to have such reform? Because we beat them in the Cold War. He couldn't keep up with SDI, is the interpretation. He couldn't keep up with rising costs along the board technologically while simultaneously helping to feed his population. That, in fact, the interpretation that America won the Cold War in fact predates Gorbachev in some ways. Well, on the rise, sure. And, and yeah. And his, in shaping his thinking, other than Matt Evangelista, who might think mm-hmm. sort of uh, NGO, peace has some influence indirectly on Gorbachev, I think that uh, most uh, observers of this system would say Gorbachev and what was going on inside the Soviet Union had to do with the Communist Party and the Soviet Union and their experience with agricultural issues and industrial issues in Russia. Okay, but see, but this is, but this is really, but this is really the, at, at the heart. Well, no, but this, okay, but this is at, this is at the heart of the question. You know, you and I could go down the street and have a really interesting discussion. You know, you could have your books, I could have my books. By the way, I, I probably agree with all your books too. But if I go to Iowa and I walk into, and I'm campaigning for president, and I walk into a diner and I say, why did we win the Cold War? Or why did the Cold War end? You know, they're going to say SDI. And I think that what's fascinating to me and also disturbing to me is that the reality of what we think happened inside of Soviet circles that brought the, so- the Gorbachev reforms to light actually matter less than that Iowa story inside the Beltway when policy is made within the Pentagon. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. But in terms of prescriptive policy for what Americans are going to do, I'm not sure that that debate is as interesting to the policymaking community as it is to you and I. Well, Jeff, we're, we're going to have to bring this to a close in a minute. A lot of people have classes at 1.30, and that's why some have already drifted off. Let me just take my prerogative here as your introducer to, to suggest that one, one way to parse Richard, Rick's comment is, is to say there's a difference between the lessons that ordinary people or even scholars might draw and the lessons that you could point to using archival evidence that influence subsequent decisions. And you could, when, when, the docu- when the documents were available, say, for the early 1980s, you'll probably show that in the Reagan administration, the, the perceived lessons of Vietnam had a significant impact on the way people thought about whether to use or not use force in El Salvador and Nicaragua. And just just to be provocative, I would think 
that the lessons of 1989, not what happened in Russia, but the collapse of Soviet power in Eastern Europe, the idea that democracy is the default position that all peoples are going to choose if just given a choice, is what a lot of neoconservatives like Paul Wolfowitz were thinking of when they came up with their scheme for toppling Saddam Hussein without much of, of a plan for what would happen later in terms of reconstruction. My hypothesis would be, you can only prove it with archival evidence, is that a lot of them looked at the Eastern European revolutions and it, it um, reinforced the conviction they had that democracy was the next stage in human evolution. It happened in Eastern Europe, it's gonna happen in the Middle East. I might be wrong, and none of us will know for a long time, but I, but I really think that that might be one of the ways in which the misperceived lessons of history actually shaped a pretty significant policy disaster. But thanks for your talk and the Thank you for having me. questions that it provoked. Thank you all. <laughs> Professor Engel will, will be here for a little while if anyone would like to take up other issues that they didn't have a chance to bring up while he eats his lunch. <laughs>